can't thread this thing through until the needle comes down, but you got to make sure the needle is all the way down before you grab it. But then you, what you have to start and stop a piece of machinery from moving. Uh, it's, there is a limit to how fast a sewing machine can operate. This is Hypercritical Weekly Talk Show, ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about by my friend and yours, John Syracuse. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is Friday, November 16th, 2012. This is episode number 94 of our beloved Hypercritical Show. We would like to say thank you very much to our sponsors today, Squarespace.com, Hover.com, and Lynda.com, who are collaborating to make this show possible. We also want to thank Mutual Mobile. These guys are super passionate about iOS as a platform. They have a large, dedicated team. All these guys do is conceive, deliver, and support mobile solutions for global brands. And you know what? They want some help. They want some help. They trust their engineers with the freedom to make technical decisions by hiring smart, talented people to their team. And that's you. They want you. They want you to come in, and they want you to do iOS work with them. They're a great company. They support the iOS community. They do meetups, they do hackathons, they do all the cool stuff. And just by going and looking at this job, you can support this show, careers.mutualmobile.com slash 5 by 5 Go there to learn more. And of course, we'd be irresponsible and potentially liable if we did not mention that Bandwidth for November is brought to you by MindNode, mind mapping app for Mac and iOS. You can brainstorm your projects, you can organize your life, you plan your vacation, don't matter. They let you collect structure and expand your ideas. They have iCloud sharing. Keep your mind maps with you. Very, very cool app. I love it. Mindnode.com. How are you doing today, John Syracuse? I'm just fine. You still have the same end time? We got to be out of here by noon? Well, what time is our thing over at Evernote? 11.45 and we need to prep for it a little bit and I'd say 15 minutes to get over there. Yeah, I mean, if we go, if we go 15 minutes past, it's fine. So 12.15. All right, well, we've got to get started then. Let's do it. Boom. Yeah, well, we got uh, one major topic of follow-up and then one main topic for the show. So maybe we'll fit it in. We'll see. Uh, first, let's start with some little tiny follow-up. First one is from Juan Canepa, C-A-N-E-P-A. Okay. I did on that. A while back, we talked about the Microsoft Surface and how much free space was available on it. Right. Uh, because the OS and... Bulky. Office took up a lot of room. Yes. And they don't have a 16 gig model. They only have a 32. And uh, the last show, I think I mentioned that one of the big outs that you get with the Microsoft Surface is that it's got, uh, or the Surface RT anyways, you got a place to plug in an SD card. And SD cards are cheap. You buy a third-party SD card, shove it in there, buy a 64 gig SD card, and suddenly your Surface has tons of space. Well, Juan writes in to uh, tell me and the world that that's all well and good, but apparently you can't install applications on the SD card. So you can put photos and videos and things that are actually big, but the, the applications have to be on the main system. I don't think that's a big limiting factor, but it does explain how they manage to deal with like, well, what happens if I yank out the SD card? Do a bunch of my apps disappear? Well, no, because you can't put any apps on it. Uh, so that's an interesting compromise. Um, and I believe this only applies to the RT when the Surface Pro comes out. I think you will be able to put apps there, but we'll see. All right, uh, another little tidbit from Ollie Hawkins. Last week, we talked about putting music behind ads. You actually talked about this on Build and Analyze, too. Uh, how you had put the music track behind that ad read you did when Marco had the ad on Howard Stern show. And I asked you what the name of that thing was called. You didn't quite know. A couple people wrote in, uh, including Ollie, to say that that's called a bed. 
apparently. Yeah, I, 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 this is something that I should have been able to respond to. I've heard it referred to as a couple of different things. Bed is the correct term. Music bed, if you want to get specific about it. Um, there you go. But there you go. Now the world knows. All right, now on to the main topic of follow-up, which, believe it or not, actually shouldn't be surprising. Uh, as one of the small things we talked about last week was uh, voting technology. Uh, now, this is not a political show, John. That's right. I was happy to see that we didn't get any uh, feedback, as far as I saw, from people who are angry about politics, because we didn't talk about politics. We just talked about voting technology. But there were lots of people who are not angry, but... Uh, engaged on the topic of voting technology. Uh, I'm going to read a couple of snippets of feedback here, and you, you tell me if you notice a theme. Mostly because I cherry-pick these, and it makes it look like there's a theme. But no, this really was the theme of a lot of the feedback. So the first is from Andreas Hartl. Uh, he says, paper-based uh, method without anything more high-tech than a ballpoint pen does work. Vote counting can be verified by anybody without sophisticated technical or mathematical skills. Its only downside is that you have to wait a little bit longer for the result. And he gave me a link to the 25th Chaos Communication Congress uh, website where they had a paper and a presentation on e-voting technology. I put them both in the show notes so you can read the paper and also watch the video, which is kind of long and boring, but it's all there. And the the paper is e-voting after NEDAP, which is a German voting system and digital pen, which is another kind of uh, electronic voting. And the subtitle is why cryptography might not fix the issue of transparent elections. And here's a little bit from the abstract. These methods introduce a level of complexity into elections, which prevents most voters from understanding the election process and its verification. Where elections are currently controlled by the people, trust in the ability of experts is required when cryptographic methods are introduced. Uh, the next bit of feedback is from Leonard, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, because it's spelled a little bit differently. Uh, there's one thing that paper voting system has going for it that no computer system will ever get. It's entirely comprehensible, observable, and provable by the simplest educated persons. Right. This is essential for trust in the voting process. What he's saying is that, that anybody with just the basic understanding of making a mark on a paper in a certain place can verify this. Right, versus the electronic and cryptographic ones require a master's level computer science degree to be able to figure it out. Right, and he says, contrast this to making a cross in a circle, putting it in a box, and then counting the votes in two piles. It's so simple that even a six-year-old can get it. A six-year-old could observe me doing it and test if I cheat him. A six-year-old could verify my result. He does not need to trust me. Uh, And he says, any computer system has the problem that is basically magic to normal people. Uh, He also says they have a word in German about this, but I'm not going to try to pronounce it. Oh, come on. No, come on. Uh, but apparently is uh, it means roughly that a ruling group has knowledge, has a knowledge advantage that they could use to control the uneducated. Uh, let's see. Next one from John Bergmayer. Uh, any system needs to be capable of paper recounts. Uh, a lot of the theoretically very secure systems you mentioned do indeed have audible paper trails. But the point is this. But this point is so amazingly important that many of the tech nerds talk about voting miss it. It needs to be possible to conduct a complete hand recount without any computers, without electricity even. There's no system ever to the end of time, no matter what technology is ever invented, that does not have the capability uh, the capability of doing a recount that can be conducted by candlelight without computers is a suitable choice. Uh, next one is from Mike Musel. Uh, he talks about what they have in, in Germany. He said, in Germany in 2009, our highest court ruled that voting computers we had up until then did violate the principles of our constitutions. 
Uh, elections have certain requirements that must be fulfilled in order to be called democratic. Among these is the need for the election to be transparent to the voters and verifiable. With our good old crosses on paper ballots, even a 90-year-old non-tech lady can stay at the polling station after the election is closed, watch the ballots to be uh, correctly counted, and note the sum of the votes for each party. Even if you had a cryptographically totally secure voting computer setup, how could that nine-year-old non-tech lady know that everything is correct? She can't. She would have to trust the tech people. And how can she know that those people are 100% trustworthy and competent? Again, she can't. There's no way. Uh, let's see if there's anything more on this one. Uh, it talks about how anyone can go and count the votes. Uh, so he has a good point about smartphone voting uh, remotely or whatever. It says, even if it were technically feasible, it would pose a risk that, for example, husband tries to control how his wife votes, oh, which right. would violate the security principle of Democrat elections. And then if you're not doing it in a controlled vote, uh, polling place anonymously, people could try to control or coerce your votes if you did remote voting. Uh, Omri Arbiv writes in with a link to uh, NPR on the media uh podcast segment about online voting uh and it's a short segment it's only like five minutes long and it's about how the country of estonia has been have has been doing online voting since 2005 they have government issued identification cards with the password and that's the only real security measure taken and they just basically you know over the internet do their votes uh, so if you want to hear how that's working out in a country that's actually doing it uh and the pros and cons of that approach uh take a look at that also in the show notes so Show notes, 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash 94. Yes, many, many links we've already just burned through in this quick follow-up. So the theme here, as you can see, is the idea that you need to have a a way to uh, both understand, like, you know, a non-technical person needs to be able to understand what's going on in the voting system, and also the voting system still needs to work uh, by candlelight with no electricity. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, the first thing I'm going to say on this topic is that a secure, you know, end-to-end auditable electronic voting system doesn't preclude any of these things. Uh, in fact, some of the systems that were linked in the, in the past uh, shows, show notes showed that, yes, that, you know, just because you use cryptography and electronic things to make the thing auditable and secure and all that stuff doesn't mean that you don't also have, okay, so say the power goes out and no one has any computers because it's like the terrible premise of that show Revolution. You still end up with a bunch of paper artifacts that you could then hand count manually right so it's not you know various voting systems pass or fail this thing but there's nothing inherent about electronic voting or cryptographically secure voting that doesn't say also you have you know it doesn't preclude you having this auditable paper trail right uh so most of these feedback uh, you know acknowledge that but the other thing is they said you know all right so you can make it secure and electronic or whatever but you also have to sort of degrade gracefully there has to be a paper trail and an artifact and the ability to do a hand recount that aside, which I, don't, I don't think any of these requirements, you know, eliminate electronic voting. You know, the thing in Germany, they had to eliminate the cruddy electronic voting machines they had. And by the way, several people from different countries wrote in to say that they have similar problems to the U.S. where when electronic voting machines were rolled out, they were worse in all possible ways than the things that they were replacing. We have the same problem in the United States. The point of the last show was that that doesn't need to be the case, that we have the smarts to make this better. But it is important to recognize that just making electronic usually seems to go terribly wrong because of just, you know, corruption and incompetence and all the usual things that happen in government. Um, but I wanted to think about the, the, this idea that the, uh, the election, both these ideas, that, that an election system needs to work by candlelight and that people need to understand it. Uh, so first, the candlelight one. 
people, I understand people feeling comforted by the idea that uh, if a giant EMP goes off and destroys all electricity producing things or whatever crazy scenario you want to come out with, that we can, you know, a, you, you, a bunch of old ladies could do the recount. Like, you don't need to understand anything. You just need to look at pieces of paper and put them into piles and then count the things in the pile. And you can have 20 different people do it. That's it's completely comprehensible. The comfort of that is obvious. Like, you don't like something that you don't understand. But the comfort of that, I think, is mostly theoretical. Because there's no way that any single person is going to be able to hand count all the votes for any country of a significant size. Right? A group of people can hand count them in a distributed manner, and then they add up their sums, and you have people repeated or whatever. But in general, it, you know, you can never have every single person in the country get their hands on all the paper ballots. Like, say you took all the paper ballots in and, and a country the size of the U.S., and each person in the entire country got a chance to hand count them to verify it for themselves. Well, that's just obviously not going to work, right? So in all cases, you're trusting that some group of people that is not you is trustworthy in some way, or at least that they're that their biases are counter to each other and, and balance each other out or whatever. Uh, but people like to just think that, you know, okay, well, I'm not going to hand count the ballots and no one I know is going to hand count the ballots. But I do know that 17 people uh, hand counted the ballots and half of them were for party A and half of them for party B. And if they keep coming up with the same numbers, uh, I trust those numbers, right? I don't quite see the connection between that distributed trust where you didn't do it, your friend didn't do it, but eventually there's some group of people who actually hand counted the things and anyone can volunteer to count them like, you know, countries like Germany and stuff. Anyone can go down there and count them and satisfy themselves, but everybody can't go down and count them. So there is some remote trust and the idea that, okay, but I understand what they're doing. They're just looking at pieces of paper and counting them and sorting them into piles. I understand that process. I don't think those things are as connected as people seem to think they are, uh, that, because you understand the system, therefore, this indirect trust is more trustworthy, right? Because indirect trust for, a set for when you're saying, I don't, you know, these mathematicians assure me that it's correct, but I don't know these mathematicians, right? That indirect trust is no good. But the indirect trust of seven people away from you, a bunch of people counted a piece of paper, that's better because you're like, okay, not only am I trusting these people who are not me, but I understand what they're doing. Therefore, I feel like I'm less likely to be cheated. My argument would be that it's much easier to, like, if those people were cheating or there was some sort of organized cheating conspiracy there, there is nothing that anyone else can do to verify that they're not cheating except for count them themselves. Whereas, and this is, I think, you know, this is, may come back to people not understanding the, the, the mathematical details of cryptography and stuff like that. Or, I mean, I don't understand the mathematical details, but just like the consequences of it. Uh, if you can imagine a system where... Uh, you add up a bunch of numbers and you come up with a total, like 12 or 13. Right. And what you want to know is, did my vote contribute to that number 12? That seems impossible because you just ended up with the number 12. You have no idea if your vote was part of that 12. Right? How, how, can, how can you ever know that you know, it was just 12, it was made up of a bunch of votes? Maybe one of those was yours, maybe it wasn't. Maybe your vote was counted, maybe it wasn't. You just know number 12. Well, imagine a system where you could come up with a total number of votes and you could be mathematically assured that your vote contributed to that total. This is getting into the magic thing. It's like, what do you mean? That makes no sense. You can't tell if your number contributed to all. That's impossible. Well, there are things that you can do mathematically to make that so that you can confirm that your vote really did contribute to the, to the total and that if your vote wasn't counted towards the total in the correct manner, the total would not validate in a particular way. 
Uh, not that this is going to help anybody because this is even more complicated, but if you ever go read up on Bitcoin, which is this uh, distributed fiat currency slash scam slash right. whatever, like, you know, you know, I don't know how you want to talk about Bitcoin. Well, wait, but why the, are you calling it a scam? It's not a scam, but like it's, it's an economic thing where it's kind of like gambling, but not really, but the currency and the, the imaginary nature of money is, is a topic that's beyond the scope of this podcast that we're talking about now. But the right. one thing Bitcoin does have going for it is that it has this system whereby everybody who's part of the Bitcoin system uh, can tell whether a transaction uh, is valid or not. Like you can't sneak in an invalid transaction that, you know, puts more money into one account that it took than it took out of the other or whatever, because there's this consensus type of algorithm and those things will be invalidated. And it's basically possible to tell whether the money that you put in correctly transferred to over there uh, mathematically. And so that's, you know, that ignores all of the whether it's a good idea to get into Bitcoin and, and how much it's valued and stuff like that. Just simply the foundation of, of being able to tell that these inputs produce this output in this particular way and that everybody in the system has to agree on it for the system to move forward. Uh, agree sounds like it's something. Anyway, it's, it, it's basically a much more complicated version of the thing that I was saying where if you have a total number, you want to know that your vote counted towards it. And that's something you can do with math. Uh, there's always going to be a secret somewhere of some secret key or some other thing that could be corrupted or stolen. But trusting that there's a mathematical foundation to proving whether something happened or not, I, I think is better than trusting that people you don't know and are never going to meet have hand counted these things simply because you think they're, you know, balancing each other off. And if they were cheating, they would catch each other or whatever. Like there's nothing there's nothing to hang your hat on mathematically that you can use to to prove that those guys did the right thing. You basically just have to trust them. Whereas if you have a cryptographically secure system, whether you understand it or not, uh, there should be enough smart people in the world assuring you on both sides of the coin that like, look, if you do this, you'll be able to tell whether your vote was counted. And if you get the wrong answer, you'll know, you'll know your vote wasn't counted. And the things required to cheat on this, you know, uh, would be, you know, they, they can lay out the exact parameters. There's no, there's no spy craft you could do to corrupt the system in a way that wouldn't be detectable except for, uh, you know, stealing secret keys or something. Uh, now, just because I, I, I have more trust in, in mathematics combined with this remote trust than people do in the other things, like they'd rather have the comfort, doesn't mean that, this is, that these people all don't have points, that uh, this is all well and good, and you can try to, like, put it on a blackboard and explain to people how it works and stuff, but the bottom line is if they don't trust it, it's not good because, you know, you want a system that everybody trusts. Whether people trust it is not necessarily connected to whether it is more or less trustworthy. Uh, so I think their their point on it being able to be counted by candlelight stands not so much on the merits of the technology, but on the fact that uh, most of the world probably agrees with them. And in the end, this is a system that everyone has to agree is fair for things to work well. So if that's if that is unchangeable and you cannot convince the world that your secure voting system actually is secure and you, you cannot convince them that you can show them how to secure it and that it's more secure than other alternatives. It doesn't matter if it's really more secure or not. All it matters is what they think. Uh, of course, that's the ultimate election hack. The fact that it doesn't really matter what actually happens in the election. All that matters is that everyone involved or almost everyone involved agrees that it was fair. Whether it was really fair or not, it's almost immaterial. If you are, if the best way to cheat an election is to do it in such a way that everyone agrees that the result is fair. Uh, so that's kind of depressing, but, but anyway, I think their point stands 
Uh, and like I said, I think any decent cryptographically secure voting system will also and must also include a paper trail and all the other things that, to be able to be hand counted. And then the security is just extra on top of it. Oh, and I also wanted to get back to one of the pieces in the feedback of like the only thing you get from an electronic auditable voting re- record is that it's uh, it's faster to, par- to tabulate the results. That is not one of the goals of these systems or shouldn't be. They're right, it shouldn't be about- speed. It should be accuracy. Or not just accuracy, but like uh, it's an extra level of verification. Like you've got all the same old verification with pieces of paper and people can hand recount them, do a lot of stuff. But also this is extra layer of security mm-hmm. on top of that that gives you p- features that you didn't have before. Like, for example, before you didn't have the ability to like go to a website and enter in some secret code that you got in your little paper receipt and find out whether your vote was counted or not. You may not understand that. You may think it's all a lie and it's total fabricated and, and not give it, you know, any credence whatsoever, that's fine because it's just on top of the existing thing that you do trust. Uh, but in general, I think, you know, that, that that's the case where your your disbelief, the sort of Luddite disbelief that electronics can cannot possibly add any extra security uh, doesn't mean that it doesn't actually add extra security and make it more difficult to uh, to corrupt and stuff like that. So I think that's like a bonus type system. Um yeah, I think I basically combined the two, whether, whether you know, p- people understanding it uh, and having the paper trail are two separate things or one, they kind of meld into each other. Uh, yeah, I, I don't want to call people Luddites because they don't trust electronic voting, because if you look at the history of electronic voting, you know, like everyone who wrote in and including, you know, everything that's happened in the U.S., we've just done it so terribly that how could it not have a bad reputation? I mean, it's got a deserved terrible reputation. And especially for people who don't understand it, all they know is every time someone tries to introduce electronic voting, it ends up being a giant disaster. Therefore, we should never do anything electronically. And that's it. I was also trying to think of other things in the world that average person doesn't understand, but that nevertheless people trust. It's difficult to come up with with straight through analogies, but there are plenty of them. Uh, The problem is they're not exactly the same thing. Like, People don't understand how airplanes fly, but they have faith that they'll be in the air <laughs> and that, you know, some faith, like they have really have no idea. Like, or, you know, and people don't understand how government works in general and how, you know, <laughs> just how the machinery of government works in actuality. But they trust that, oh, this law was passed and I trust it was passed in a way that didn't involve just a bunch of guys in the back room chomping cigars and saying, let's do this. You know, there are many things in the world that people don't understand that nevertheless put their trust in. So I'm not of the opinion that it would be impossible to get human beings to trust uh, an end-to-end auditable cryptographically secure electronic voting system. I'm of the opinion that it would be possible to, uh, maybe you have to wait for a couple of generations of people to die off and gradually introduce it and, and actually do it right for once and stuff like that, but it could happen. Uh, and I think the people who are against it would eventually die off and then everyone else would think it's crazy to do it in any other way. I don't think voting is unlike every other part of the human condition where it's like, well, Everything else we can advance technology in, but voting we have to do with rocks until the end of time because voting, <laughs> voting is different in some fundamental way than anything else human beings do. Right. It cannot, it cannot be improved upon with modern technology. It must be the same that it was, you know, right. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And there are many ways you can shoot down any analogy. Flying a plane is not like an election. Don't you understand? Election is how we govern ourselves. It's like the meta system. It's so important, blah, blah, blah. But there is, you know, th- there is nothing in, in life that is so special that technology cannot touch it ever. Uh, and I that think almost you, sounds like the intro to your show. No, that's nothing is so wrong. perfect that it. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's kind of a similar thing, but anyway, uh, 
like I said, I'm not I'm not arguing against paper trails. I think they have to be there, and I think there's no reason they shouldn't be. But I'm arguing for electronic voting systems done right. And done right means you have all of the benefits of the existing system, plus many extra benefits on top of that that people may not care about or anything. But as long as it's a superset of the existing security mechanisms, then so what? People can can pretend that's all magic and BS, and it is equally secure to the best you know paper system with the hand recounts and all that stuff. All right. That, that went a little long. I think I was rambling there. But. I think it's all right. Sponsor? Sure. Hover.com, simplified domain management. You've probably registered a domain from a company that they try to upsell you on stuff. You go there and you register a domain name. And the next thing you know, you've signed up for it for five years and you've bought all kinds of additional, you know, back ordering things and stuff you didn't want. Or even if you are smart and, and savvy enough to disable all of those things as you're going through the checkout process, they're still there and they're still kind of a nuisance. Well, Hover.com does not do that. These guys, their goal is to provide you with a straightforward, minimal, clean, honest process that makes it easy to go there, register the domain that you want, and go away. That's what they do. There's a search box. You type in the domain name you want. If it's available, you register it. If it's not available, they'll show you some alternatives. And that's it. You get out. There's a checkbox. Do you want to have the free who is privacy? I leave that checked. And then you can go into your settings and make it so that uh, there's like a checkbox in there that says that never, never contact me again. <laughs> you can do that if you want. I don't mind them contacting me because they have some pretty cool stuff like their uh, domain transfer valet service where if you're transferring a domain from another registrar, they'll do the entire thing. Like a human being that works there for free will do the whole process for you. They have email hosting if you want it. They have built-in free uh, DNS, which is what I'm pretty much using for almost everything now. Go check these guys out, hover.com slash Dan sent me. This will get you 10% off everything that you do. Or you can just use the coupon code Dan sent me when you're buying something. Like if you're an existing customer, if you're already there and you're transferring more domains, there's no limit on how many times you can use that. And I, I actually use that myself for my domain name registration problem, my addiction. And uh, you can go there, hover.com slash Dan sent me, get 10%. Hopefully you'll like the experience as much as I do. Thanks very much to them for making the show possible. What you got next, John? Yeah, before we move on, <laughs> one point that a lot of these bits of feedback. Oh, I got it. Uh, I got it turned. I got it turned off. All right. Uh, a lot of these bits of feedback about voting kind of matter of factly state that the way their voting system works in their country, the voting system that they like usually, <laughs> that it involves uh, government issued ID, right? And from coming from a U.S. perspective, the rest of the world probably thinks we're crazy. But this just goes to show that, like, you know, in, in the same way that I don't think that the average person needs to understand the math involved for a, a, a cryptographic voting system to eventually be considered secure. Uh, people in the rest of the world don't think twice about uh, having government issued ID and having to show it at the polls to vote. Whereas in America, that is a very, very big issue. Uh and so the same people who say, you know, don't you understand? It has to be a paper ballot. It has to be hand counted. And of course, you have your government issue ID. And we would turn around and say, don't you understand? You can't require a government issue ID. And say, well, what? How can you vote without a government issue ID? How do we even know who's voting? Again, you know, everyone has their personal hangups culturally, personally, uh, and not all of them are, are based on logic. So in the same in the same way that I'm saying to these people that, oh, you know, you you, you know, it doesn't need to be done with rocks. Uh, 
when they, they would say to us, you know, you have to have a government ID to, to vote. How can you vote without that? It's just stupid. Yeah, and I can't talk about this too much without getting into politics or yeah. U.S. politics. But it just goes to show that the rest of the world is different. Like, and I don't think most of the feedback even acknowledged that. They were just like, let me explain how it works in the civilized world. We use rocks and pieces of paper and a government issued ID. And it's like, that's not going to fly in the U.S. That's, you know, oh, people are strange. When you're a stranger, is that it? Yes, that is the correct Jim Mars endorsed lyrics. Okay. All right, so let's move on to the main topic today. And this could be short. How many more sponsors do we have? We have two more, so we'll space them out. All right. So uh, don't let me go too long. All right. Got to fit them in. Um, this topic is, as teased in the last show, it's about uh, using ARM processors, all caps, A-R-M, instead of Intel processors on Macs. Right. And it is spawned by this Business Week article from about a week ago titled, Apple said to be exploring switch from Intel for Mac. That is a bad headline because it is awkward. Right. Uh, here's a little synopsis thing. Apple exploring ways to replace Intel processors in its Mac personal computers with a version of the chip technology it uses in the iPhone and the iPad. According to people familiar with the company's research, mm-hmm. uh, people familiar with. Apple engineers have grown confident that the chip designs used for its mobile devices will one day be powerful enough to run its desktops and laptops, said three people knowledgeable of with knowledge of the work right. who asked to remain anonymous because the plans are confidential. All right, so typically fuzzily source thing. I'm mostly going to use this article as a jumping off point uh, for a discussion about this idea. Uh, and I'm going to give sort of a... Cliff Notes background <laughs> on what I think are the important issues behind this. If you know anything about CPU technology, none of this is going to be new information, uh, and I apologize. But most of the time I do a show like this, I get positive feedback from the people who may not be, you know, uh, nerds in this particular section of the topic. So uh, if you're a tech nerd, you can tune out for a while and just wait till the end when I get to some conclusions. And But if you're not, I hope I will at least teach you Something in broad strokes that you may not have known too much about before. All right. So let's start with RISC versus CISC. Do you know what those stand for, Dan? I do not remember. I used to know and back in college. I, I so There you go. You'll be one of those people who's getting value out of this section. That's right. <laughs> all right. So these are all caps, RISC and CISC. Uh, RSC is reduced instruction set computing and complex instruction set computing. Yeah, thank you. There you go, pulling stuff up. All right. No, Uh, you. As soon as you said the first one, I remembered the second one. Yeah, this is one of those. uh, I think it's pretty much like a a backronym where the the acronym CISC didn't invent didn't exist until the acronym RISC was invented. Someone can send me (laughs) corrections if they don't, but it's kind of like, oh, I have an idea and I've given it a name, and I'm also going to give a name to your idea. Because my idea is better than your idea, and I will contrast them, and yours is complex as mine is reduced. Anyway, uh, this was a hot debate, I don't know, a decade ago? Longer? Yeah. Uh, it's a couple Longer, of, I would say longer, because I remember the, well, this came, this was the whole Spark versus uh, Intel thing. Yeah, it's like the 90s. Yeah. Mid, late 90s, even before that. Uh, so there's a bunch of articles from Ars Technica that are great to look at for this. I put them in the show notes. One is called Risk versus Cisc, the post-risk era by John Stokes from 1999. That's a really old one. And there's also Risk versus Cisc in the mobile era, also by John Stokes in 2008. Uh, if you want nerdier backgrounds on this stuff, I suggest reading those articles. Um, 
All right, but I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version. So first, let's start with, you know, reduced instruction set computing, complex instruction set computing. What the heck is an instruction set? Uh, an instruction set is basically the list of things that you can ask a processor to do. Like you build this little piece of hardware and you have to talk to it. And what can you tell it to do? It is the API for the processor using kind of, the parlance like it, of our time. Yeah, because it's only, you know, what can you tell a processor to do? There's a limited set of things you can tell it to do, and you have to define them. Can you can you tell the processor to add two numbers together? Probably, right? So how do you do that? Well, you tell this instruction, and you put this number here and this number there, you know, and there's a list of things that you can tell it to do. Did you ever do assembly? I sure did. Okay. Surely did. Yes, too much assembly. Uh, <laughs> so how it works is that, you know, uh, these days, the source code is compiled into machine code, which is like a list of instructions for, for the CPU. And the CPU reads those instructions from memory and executes them, right? Uh, machine code is a ter- term you don't hear thrown around too much today, mostly because it's not that relevant. But what it, what it comes down to is just a bunch of numbers, right? It's going to read a bunch of numbers from memory, and it's going to interpret them in a certain way that like, oh, when I see the number five, that means the add instruction. And then the next number is the one thing I'm adding. And the next number is the other thing I'm adding. And it's not really like that. But that's that's the idea. Uh, almost nobody writes machine code uh, in, in these days. Uh, maybe people who, like me, in an undergraduate course had to design their own CPUs and then program with the machine code ended up writing machine code where you just literally write a series of numbers. It is like the least human friendly way to program. I guess toggle switches would be worse. So if you couldn't even type the numbers in, but you had to do them, their binary representation with toggle switches, that would be worse. Uh, but no one does that, right? Assembly, which is a term you may have heard, assembly code is kind of like a symbolic version of machine code. Instead of having the number five, you decide to, if you type ADD, the word add, we're going to say, well, that's the add instruction. So you don't have to remember that the add instruction is number five. You just type in ADD. And then the next thing, you type in a bunch of letters that says where it's getting one number from and, you know, whatever. It's much nicer for human beings to not have to type just a series of numbers. They want words, right? And so they just basically map the words to numbers. You take that assembly code, you run it through an assembler. It reads the little words. It converts them into the actual numbers. And then the machine executes those numbers. And those little words or those numbers, that's your instruction set. Like you've got an add instruction, a subtract instruction, a compare instruction, all, all this other stuff. They have numbers assigned to them. You write in assembly code. The CPU is not executing assembly code. Your assembler is looking at the assembly code, converting them pretty much one-to-one into their equivalent numbers, putting them into memory, then getting the CPU to slurp those instructions out of memory and then go through each one, execute it, and so on and so forth. Right? Now, people used to write programs in assembly a lot more than they do today. Now, almost no one was writing in machine code in our lifetimes, but in uh, assembly, you know, a, you people used to write programs that huge parts of the original Mac operating system were written in assembly, not just the drivers or, you know, anything you would think that's like low level code, but just like huge parts of the actual operating system, like parts of, of the Mac toolbox that did the GUI, like buttons and dialogues and menus. Uh, big parts of that were written in assembly. A lot of the reason they're written in assembly is because assembly is like, you know, that's you talking almost directly to the CPU. Granted, you're writing in a symbolic language that gets converted into numbers, but it's very close to one to one correspondence with what's going on inside the cpu so if you want to wring every last piece of performance out you're going to say look cpu i'm going to tell you to do this then you're going to do this and then you're going to put the result there and the next instruction i'm going to take that result from there and put it over here like very low level direct you know not not a big layer of abstraction between you and telling the cpu what to do uh and assembly code can be very small and very clever and do interesting things uh so and memory was very tight back then so large parts of the mac operating system written in assembly uh, and if you're writing anything in assembly, what you want is a a processor 
that has lots of powerful instructions for assembly, right? You wanted to be able to write an instruction to this CPU where it would do something useful for you, right? So here's an example of uh, what later became known as complex instruction set computing, right? A single command that says, take a piece of memory from location A and move that piece of memory into a different place in memory at location B. That seems like the simplest possible instruction you could do, but it's not. Uh, it's actually pretty complicated because you're telling the CPU, go into RAM, find address 57, take the stuff that's there, take a byte, take a word, take a double, or take some piece of memory, and then move it to a different place in memory, address 122, right? That is actually relatively complicated because there's no way... You know, it's it has you have to the CPU has to pull the thing out of memory, hold it for a second, and then stick it into another place. But if you were writing, if you were had to write assembly, you would want to be able to write that. You wouldn't want to have to write take the, the thing that's in memory location fifty seven, pull it into the CPU, take it out of the CPU, and stick it into memory location two fifty six. You just want to say just move it from fifty six to two twenty seven or whatever. You just one instruction, right? That is an example of a complex instruction set. It's you can imagine the the individual steps that you want to do, but you don't want to have to write those individual steps. You just want to sell the sell the CPU. Right, Look, just right. move this thing from one place to the other. Because if you didn't, you'd have to write three instructions every time. You just wanted to move something from one to the other. So the race back then was to make CPUs that had really fancy instructions, so that if you're writing an assembler or even if you're writing a compiler or whatever, you're like, I don't need to handhold this CPU. I can say here's what I want you to do. You figure out how to do it. I don't care how you do it, but I have a very powerful, complicated instruction and you do that the way you want it. That's complex instruction set computing because the, the, all the CPU makers were trying to make, you know, well, my CPU has an instruction that lets you, you know, compare two strings to see whether they're equal. I'm just making this up, but like, like, wow, I don't even have to go through the individual steps of that. The CPU will just do it itself. That's a great CPU. It's powerful. It's awesome, right? Who wouldn't like that, John? Right. All right, so here's, Here's where this kind of thing falls down, and I'm going to go into a crazy analogy that's not remotely close to being correct, but I hope it'll give you the gist of what's going on, right? So I'm going to say that this complex instruction set computing, having very powerful instructions, I can tell the computer to do this complicated thing, is kind of like a sewing machine. Uh, And there's a particular sewing machine animated GIF that I tried to find on the web, and I found like 8,000 versions of it. I'll put one in the chat room here. i you, have you seen this one? You're looking in the chat room. I am looking. Uh, let me see. Oh yeah, this is a very this is common. an old one. But yeah, this, this is great. There's uglier ones too. But for people who don't know how sewing machines work or have never used a sewing machine, take a look at this animation. You've seen all seen sewing machines. It's like a, a big machine with like a needle, and you put fabric down on a table and you slide it underneath the needle. The needle goes up and down really fast, up and down, up and down, up and down. You feed the material through it, and it sews things together. Well, this animation shows you what's actually going on. When it you also explains the mystery of the bobbin. Yeah, like the, the, when the needle goes down in a sewing machine, it's not just, just punching a string through and pulling it back up because that wouldn't work. It would just make a series of holes. Right? There's a thread threaded through the needle, and when it goes down through the fabric into the table, below it is a little bobbin that basically w- takes some thread that's on the bobbin and weaves it through the thread that came down with the needle, and you get stitches. So if you stare at this GIF animation long enough, you should get an idea of like, the basics of how a sewing machine works. And it's actually, you see what it's doing. It's like, you know, if a human being was doing it, they wouldn't probably do it in this exactly this way, but you end up getting a bunch of interlock stitches with one set of thread going on the needle and the other set of thread on the bobbin and they interlock with each other and sew two pieces of fabric together. Uh, and so this is a pretty ingenious machine. I also put in 
two links to a very old show called The Secret Life of Machines. Oh, yeah. Which was a British show, most notable to my uh, young American self as the program where I learned what sticky tape is, <laughs> as opposed to non-sticky tape, I guess. Uh, that's what they call scotch tape, and, you know, scotch is the name brand. Anyway, uh, put a link to that in the show notes. It's like The Secret Life of Machines, The Sewing Machine, Part 1 and Part 2. I actually encourage you to watch these things. Yes, they look like they're on terrible video from the 70s or 80s, uh, and the people have British accents, and they're blurry. But really watch it. And I think by the end of watching these programs, unlike by the end of this podcast, you will actually understand how sewing machines work. And I think it's important because you can see, you know, how how they figured out how to do this, how to take this very complex series of motions, having one piece of thread threaded through a hole in, in fabric and take another piece of thread and loop it through that and then come back out. How can you do that? Like without having a human being threading things through a little hole and guiding it through. And the machine they came up with to do it looks almost nothing like it would look like if your hands did it. But it, it is, you know, basically the bobbin is being passed through, not literally, but, uh, you know, effectively the thread on the bobbin is being passed through a loop brought down by the other needle. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's quite an interesting little machine, right? This is very close to philosophically what CISC is like. Like if you had to explain someone how to sew two things together... Uh, with a particular st- locking stitch that holds two pieces of fabric together. You could do it, but that's a lot of steps. And you'd be like, wouldn't it be better if I could just sort of feed a piece of fabric through a machine? And I say, machine, look, just do that stitch thing. I don't want to have to tell you all the individual steps. So what it basically comes down to is you got to punch the needle through, and then something grabs a little thing, and then you got to have a little bobbin. It tucks its thread through there, but I don't want to have to tell you that. I just want to have an instruction called stitch. And I hit a pedal on the floor, and the thing goes stitch. And if I just hold down that pedal, go stitch, 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 <laughs> and I can feed the fabric through. And I've made a sewing machine, and it's awesome. Cisc processors were like sewing machines. Uh, and the cooler steps they could do, the more interesting stitches that they could do, the more powerful those CPUs were. Uh, but like a sewing machine, like there's a limit on how fast the sewing machine can do what it does. If you stare at that animation, you're like, okay, well, how fast can this animation go? Can I do like five stitches a second? 10 stitches a second maybe can i do 20 maybe but now you know my 20 stitches a second that's pretty darn fast can you make a machine that that performs those series of complicated moves that fast can i do 200,000 stitches a second probably not someone someone from the industrial sewing machine world will send me uh, some feedback on this show and tell me how fast the fastest sewing machine in the world can do, go but like at a certain point pressing the pedal to do one stitch and it's like you told me to do one stitch and i got to do this series of 27 really complicated steps and the steps depend on each other. They're kind of interlocked. And, you know, you get into issues of like physics of things hurtling past each other and you can't thread this thing through until the needle comes down. But you got to make sure the needle is all the way down before you grab it. But then you, what you have to start and stop a piece of machinery from moving. Uh, it's, there is a limit to how fast a sewing machine can operate. Uh, compare that limit of how fast can I make this little sewing machine thing go. Compare that limit to how fast an electric motor can spin. Just a plain old straight barrel electric motor. Uh, a sewing machine, you know, a thousand RPM, a hundred RPM, and, you know, stitches per minute, rotations per minute or whatever. How many stitches can you make per second? It doesn't come close to an electric motor. An electric motor can do tens of thousands of, uh, of rotations per minute. A electric motor can spin very, very fast. You just, you know, it, you put it in some really good ball bearings. You have some magnets and a coil of wire and electricity. Maybe you could even magnetically levitate the spindles so there's no friction except for air that you could suck the air out of it to make it a vacuum. You know, you can make electric motor spin really fast because all it does is spin. There's no oscillating parts. There's no thread going through a piece of fabric and one piece of thread being shoved through another. It's just spinning. 
That's all it does. It rotates around again and again. And you can do that really, really, really fast. And if you want to make that electric motor go really fast, you know right where you have to concentrate. Whatever thing's stopping me from going fast. Friction, uh, the, the force inside of the thing of making it spin apart if it goes too fast, you know, the, the, the centripetal force on the, the outsides of the piece of metal causing it to disintegrate. But those limits are way higher than the limits of a sewing machine. If you had a contest between the best engineers in the world, how fast can you make a sewing machine go versus how fast can you make an electrical motor go? The electrical motor guys would destroy the sewing machine. <laughs> and so the risk philosophy was that they figured this out. You know, they said, all right, we're making these awesome CPUs with these really complicated instructions. But geez, every time we try to make these things go faster, like how fast can we make that instruction to do some complicated operation? I got this is all these steps involved and they're all interlocked with each other. And this limits how fast I can go with that. What if we make the CPU equivalent of that electric motor where what it does is really stupid and simple, but we can do it really, really fast. Uh, and so. That's, that's a little definition of risk here from the uh, the Wikipedia article. CPU design strategy based on the insight that simplified as opposed to complex instructions can provide higher performance. This simplicity enables much faster execution of each instruction. Uh, all right. So an example of a risk architecture is the ARM architecture. It's an ARM originally for Acorn risk machines, I believe. And I forget what they, we went through this on a past show. I'm not going to look it up again. We don't need a second round of feedback about it. But anyway, it's a risk machine. Um, and they used to call them like load store architectures. And the, the reason load store architecture comes up is because given that uh, complex instruction operation from before, uh, take a piece of memory from location 57 and move it to 128. On a risk CPU, that would be read location 57 into register one. Write location, write register one out into location 256. So it would be two operations instead of one. I may have gotten that wrong with the details. But basically, you can take any complicated operation and decompose it into simpler operations. So the move from one place in memory to another, it's going to have to go through the CPU anyway. There is no instruction that says move it from this location to the other one. You have to issue the two, take it from here, put it to there, take it from here, put it to there. And that seems like a, a, a loss. Like, wasn't it much better when you could just tell it to move it from one place to the other? But in actuality, because the, those those risk instructions are so simple, you can make them go much faster. And you can interleave them with each other and, and do all, all sorts of other things uh, because the instructions themselves are small. And so everything about risk machines was designed to be more like the electric motor and less like the sewing machine. They didn't want to have any special uh hardware special registers that only served a single purpose. Well, when you divide two numbers, the result always goes in this register. They wanted to have a big, very uniform register file with lots of what they call general purpose registers. Where like when you divide two numbers, the result doesn't always have to go into this register. It can go in any of the registers. In fact, all the registers are the same. And we have a bunch of them because there's going to be a bunch of these little tiny instructions in flight at once. Uh, and maybe we can put more of them in parallel and interleave them with each other. We just want to make it regular and uniform. They did stuff like... Uh, you know, either discouraging or outright forbidding unaligned memory access. You know, old machines would be like, we can read memory anywhere. You don't have to start from a particular location. You just tell me I can read you a byte at a time from anywhere in memory. And then risk machines are more like, no, you can only do aligned memory access. You have to start on, on a, you know, a multiple of 32 bits or a multiple of 16 bits or something, some other chunk like that. If that's inconvenient for you, tough luck. Take off the bigger piece, bring it into the CPU, chop it up how you want. Uh, and it's basically, you know, making it much, much less pleasant to program an assembly language because you're getting a much dumber, simpler machine that has much more limitations. And so when anyone was into assembly programming, they'd be like, I don't want to program a risk CPU. I got to tell it how to do everything. And half the instructions I want to do aren't even there. I can't even pull a byte of memory from here. I got to pull like 
32 bits of memory and then mask it to get the bytes I want. And it's just, it's terrible, right? Uh, but that's not what it was designed for. It was designed for an age where compilers write that for you and optimize it for you purely because like the electric motor, they could spin a risk CPU really, really fast. And in CPU world, spinning really fast is the clock speed. It's megahertz. How many instructions per second or how many cycles per second can, can happen? Oh, and that's the other thing they did on these on risk CPUs is they would try to make almost every single instruction execute in a single clock. Not everyone, because there's you know complicated division instructions and stuff like that, but they would want they would not want to have an instruction like on sys CPUs where it's some big complicated instruction like the sewing machine that takes 17 cycles to execute. Uh, you know, adding two numbers together. They wanted all their instructions to be so simple that every single one of them executed in a single cycle, except for maybe a couple of outliers. So again, the entire instruction set, the entire CPU architecture was designed to make the CPU go fast and not to make assembly programmers life easier and, and, uh, or, you know, anything like that. They, they expected the compilers to spit out this stuff. All right, let me see what that. <laughs> these are, <laughs> these are some good rants for me today. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm revisiting old territory. All right, let's do the second sponsor, lynda.com online learning company. These guys have more than 77,000 video tutorials. I call them screencasts. They call them video tutorials. They're going to have to, you know, it's their thing. They know what to call them. They teach you stuff. They teach you everything from design, photography, business, programming, you name it, audio and video stuff. They even have 3D animation stuff in there. They're adding new courses all the time, all the time. And the way this thing works is you get a membership and then you get access to everything that's in there so that you can teach yourself stuff from experts. They have experts who are working in the industry with real world experience, creating these things, teaching these things and selling them there. And it's really, really cool. I love learning with screencasts. And of course, I mean, I'm, I'm probably biased because I've made screencasts before. I used to make a living doing screencasts, but I love this stuff. It's over on lynda.com. That's spelled L-Y-N-D-A lynda.com membership starts at 25 bucks a month but you get unlimited 24 by 7 access to the best videos out there they made a special url that you can visit lynda.com slash five by five and if you go there you'll get seven days for free access to everything seven days free and you'll support the show you'll make john happy you'll make me happy lynda.com slash five by five check them out so we got some numbers on uh actual risk in CPUs in terms of number of registers and stuff, just to reinforce the point about the uh, register, what they call the register file, how many different registers you have. So the PowerPC CPU that used to be in Macs, that's also a risk CPU. Uh, and like I said, risk CPUs tend to have way more registers and they're all kind of, you know, uh, no special purpose registers or few special purpose registers, mostly general, lots of general purpose registers. So PowerPC had 32 general purpose registers and 32 floating point registers, right? And compared to x86 Intel chips, uh, back when they were 16-bit, uh, x86 chips had six registers, which were kind of sort of dedicated, special purpose. Not all of them are really general. Certain one, Like I said, you know, when you did a, a divide instruction, the result always had to go in a particular register and stuff like that. Uh, plus a couple of other things for like stack pointers and stuff. 32-bit x86 had six general purpose registers, uh, plus some extended versions of the, the, the you know, stack pointer uh, registers and stuff. 64-bit, they added a few more. You've got 14 general purpose registers uh, plus the other ones. And so you see, like, x86 has been trying to add more registers, but PowerPC from the day it was born had this, you know, huge number of registers. More registers than you would expect a human being to keep track of. Because if you're writing assembly and you've got to keep a track of 32 registers, you're like, All right, what the hell did I put in register 17? And when I add these two numbers together, was that in register 32 or 57? It's just, 
you can imagine writing assembly. Maybe you can't. I'm writing assembly by hand, and like it's hard to keep track of these things. Like they're all just called R1, R7, R15, R3, <laughs> and they're all the same. <laughs> and how can you keep track of where anything is? Like it's totally made for a machine to do because a machine can say, okay, I've got 32 registers to work with. And I can just keep track of them and have sort of a register allocation algorithm. I figure out how to use them when I compile this code. It's much better for a machine. A floating point is a good example, too. On, on x86, they used to have a separate floating point unit called the x87 stack-based floating point unit, which was uh, a dedicated uh, separate little thing itself, which eventually moved on die. But it was stack-based where you'd push a number, push another number, and then push on a multiply operation, which would multiply the top two numbers on the stack. But you could also reach down lower into the stack and do stuff and... Uh, it's not really conducive to parallelization because when you have a stack, it's like a stack of plates where you push, push two plates on the top and perform an operation that combines those two plates into one plate and puts the result back on top of the stack. And if you want to have 17 people operating at the same time on the stack, it's not really great because of the way a stack works. You can't have some guy in the middle yanking things in and out because what if the guy on the top was, you know, anyway, uh, stack-based floating point was also a problem uh, for them because it was kind of designed in... in uh, in a different era when the most important thing wasn't like parallel execution and simplicity of, of things. Now, what all those articles I just referred to at the very front of the article by John Stokes were in reference to like CISC versus RISC in the post-RISC post era. That was all a sort of rehashing this CISC RISC stuff that I just talked about and explaining how, uh, although that was the origin of the RISC movement, it's much less relevant today because these days when you have this x86 quote-unquote CISC CPU that has these complex, complex instructions, uh, the way they work internally is they take that complicated instruction that says move something from one memory address to another in RAM, and they break it down into what they call micro-operations. So they say, okay, even though you said move this data word from address here to address there, I'm going to break that single instruction into two smaller instructions. One that says get that thing from memory and put it into this register, and the other that says take that register and stick it into memory. Right, so they've basically taken a CISC instruction set and inside the CPU break it down into something more approximating a RISC instruction set. And the actual CPU is built to execute these tiny little micro operations. It's not executing, you know, it doesn't, the CPU doesn't see this big complicated uh, instruction that says to do 50 things. It sees a stream of tiny little micro operations that were created from those single instructions. So they build the entire CPU internally to execute these micro operations very efficiently and very quickly. And they just have a decoder part on the front of, on the front end that takes your complicated instruction scene and decodes it into these simpler ones. Uh, and that's the idea of getting at the post-risk era where it's like, all right, so the instruction set itself, how relevant is that if everybody inside is building basically risk CPUs uh, and if you have a complex instruction set, you just need a decoder. Now, part of the CPU in an x86 chip is dedicated to all the stuff that has to say, okay, I've got this big complicated instruction coming in. How many micro operations does that break down to? Uh, can I have some piece of hardware that automatically breaks that down into the micro operations? Or is it a really complicated one where I have to have like a little software microcode program that tells me how to break this down? You need to dedicate part of the chip just to dealing with this thing. And by the way, you have to keep track of these little micro operations because you have to sort of reassemble the result into like make it look as if that complicated instruction really executed. Like you can't have things go out of order. It has to look to the assembly programmer just like those old x86 chips from Intel that actually did implement this complex instruction set internally, despite the fact that inside is basically a, a risk-like CPU executing all this stuff. So you have all this the front-end hardware and the tracking hardware and the reassembling the things and making sure the exact timings and the exact rules are maintained uh, and they behave exactly the same as they used to. Uh, and the argument back in the 90s was that 
All right, so Intel may have figured out that this risk thing is a good idea because they can make their CPUs run faster, but they have to dedicate all this time and energy and parts of the chip, and like they have to, you know, they basically have to have this whole whole bunch of gunk inside their CPUs to translate their crappy, complicated instruction set into the simpler one and, and keep track of everything. Uh, and that's bad because, you know, the PowerPC guys don't need to do that. They don't have the whole section of their chip doesn't have to exist to break down their instructions into micro operations and stuff like that because they already are micro and everything's fine. So therefore, PowerPC is going to win and risk is awesome and Intel drools and so on and so forth. Uh, and from a technical perspective, I remember feeling that way that like, Intel looks like the crufty, crappy thing. You're like, well, they may have clever engineers and they may have figured out to break up their instructions into smaller ones and stuff, but they got to deal with all those that, you know, making that stuff to break up the instructions and keeping track of them and reassembling the results and keeping the order consistent. That stinks. X86 stinks. It's ugly. It's gross, right? Uh, Intel also basically agreed that it was ugly and gross and they have been trying for years and years to get rid of the ugliest and grossest parts. So the stack-based floating point that's not really great for... uh, doing things quickly or in parallel they've been deprecating that they have to keep supporting it but they're like look don't if if you're writing a compiler for example uh and someone's doing floating point math don't generate x87 instructions for the stack based floating point thing because that's slow and it's always been slow and it's not going to probably get much faster Uh, we still have to support it just so all your old programs are running stuff but instead what we have here is something that they called sse streaming simd extensions single instruction multiple data uh it's a way to process lots of uh data in parallel at once like if you have you know two sets of 50 numbers and you want to add the first set of 50 numbers to the second set of 50 numbers you can have instruction that does it all at once and that may not seem like it's the same thing as floating point but it also operates on floating point numbers and they said look compiler writers uh, even though you may not think you're doing like you know uh doing a single instruction on 50 pieces of data, the floating part hardware we have in this, in these SSE parts of our chip is way faster than that stack based one. We can do stuff in parallel. Don't generate instructions for, for stack based floating point. If you see any floating point code in your, you know, high level, you know, not high level, but higher level than assembly, your C program or whatever, just target the, our SSE extensions. Uh, and that will make your stuff go faster. So they have they've had four versions of SSE so far. I think it's four. You know, they just keep versioning them and making them more and more powerful. And these days, if you compile a program for an Intel chip, you would hope that there's no stack based floating point stuff being sent to the chip, despite the fact that it, the chip is still able to do that. All the floating point stuff is targeting this more modern, more parallelizable non stack based floating point. Uh, uh, Intel also went from 32 bit to 64 bit, and they took that. Well, not Intel, but AMD actually. AMD came up with uh, x86-64, which is a 64-bit, uh, a bunch of instructions that only work on 64-bit chips, chips uh, that are compatible with uh, old x86 programs. And they took that as an opportunity to make a new instruction set that is more amenable to modern chip designs than the old one. Because there were no 64-bit instructions at all before there were 64-bit chips. So they said, we don't have to just make, like... Uh, we don't have to stick with the old ways. This is an opportunity. This is a discontinuity to come up with a better instruction set. They added registers. Uh, they, you know, made the rules about how the, the 64 bit instructions execute, uh, make it easier to do encode and decode and instruction tracking and parallelization and all that stuff. Intel was off doing its own thing with the, uh, itanium and. Another, oh, right. I remember that thing. Talk about a uh, very long word instruction computing, all that stuff. That's, that's a whole other topic. But anyway, suffice it to say that Intel's thing didn't quite work out. x86-64 caught on, and now Intel makes chips with x86-64. But 
this was an, another opportunity for them to get rid of old crufty stuff. Say, so if you're targeting, if you're a compiler writer and you're targeting 64-bit CPUs, use these cool new instructions and you have access to more registers and see, isn't this thing getting nicer? Isn't our CPU architecture getting to be more like those nice, clean RISC architectures where you had just had a bunch of general purpose registers and a simple instruction set? We're not there yet, but we're slowly trying to abandon our cruft, right? So that that is the path that uh, that Intel, the, the leading uh, CPU vendor, with its complex instruction set CPUs has been pursuing to try to uh, uh, reap the advantages of the risk revolution without actually having a risk instruction set on its CPUs. So hold this thought about risk versus CISC for a moment that hopefully you have some at least sort of feel for. And we're going to do a sidebar into one other topic that will come back and turn out to be relevant. All right. Uh, so... All the stuff we've been talking about is, you know, for processors. So what is a processor and how do we make it? That turns out to be very important. And you, you all know the processor is a little black chip that we see in the diagrams. It's a flat thing. It's got little metal contacts somewhere on it. And inside that little black package is a semiconductor. It's like a piece of silicon. Uh, it's very flat. And the way they make stuff on it is they use lithography to etch things onto it. And lithography is just basically shining light or some other light-like thing through a mask that blocks some of the light and lets some through and they use materials and uh, techniques so that when the light hits a certain area, it changes the material in one way and the light doesn't hit the area. It leaves the material the other way. And they do this to make very small things basically, uh, by using different kinds of light and different ways to focus it. And, uh, you know, uh, other techniques, they can make very small features that no machine could ever etch like the little tiny things that are on these chips, but light that they they can focus light and other, I don't know what you would call it, but it's electromagnetic radiation uh, into very small areas. And so they can make the mask actually relatively big and then use lenses and stuff to focus it down and, and make different features. And they do this again and again until they wear away the material and certain things. And what they're basically trying to make is a transistor, a thing, a thing that can switch on and off. And they do this by having to do layers of material that allow electrons, electrons to flow through them or not, depending on if some current is applied to some other layer of material. But the point is that these things are very, very small. Uh, and the way they describe the size of the things that are etched onto here with lithography is called the feature size or sometimes the process node. Uh, I tried to look up a good definition to this because we all hear these numbers bandied about. We've talked about it on this show when we say like, oh, the uh, they're using a die shrunk version of the A5 in the iPad 2 and the new iPad 2s. It used to be I don't know, 45 nanometers and now it's 32 nanometers. All right, so nanometers is how they measure. That's the, that's the scale things are measured these days. It used to be, what is it, uh, microns or micrometers? I don't remember what it was before we went down to nanometers. But they, it, nanometer is very small, right? And what they're measuring is they call the, uh, the half pitch. It's the half, the half the distance between identical features uh, on the etched piece of silicon, usually for a memory cell, because memory cells are very, very regular. Uh, doesn't mean that every single thing on a 32 nanometer chip is 32 nanometers wide or 32 nanometers apart. But it's like it's it's a they need some way to measure these things because larger features uh, are chunkier and smaller, simpler features can be skinnier. But they've just come up with a single standard for how we talk about how small you can make stuff and. That number has been marching down for all of our lives. It used to be you could not make things that were, you know, very small at all compared to what we have now. And then we just keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller every year. And that means the entire thing shrinks because if you can make every piece smaller, then the whole thing gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Right. Uh, so Ivy Bridge processors 
that's Intel's processors that are in the MacBook Airs, MacBook Pros, uh, Intel's uh, current crop of desktop uh, and laptop CPUs. They are done at the 22 nanometer uh, process node. And they have all a bunch of other features, you know, about their 3D transistors, different ways to etch things onto the, the silicon thing. So, to, so you can jam more stuff in a closer thing. But the bottom line is that they're at 22 uh, nanometers, right? Uh, and in general, as you shrink this feature size, as you make everything smaller and smaller and smaller, almost everything improves. The cost improves tremendously because your unit of cost is like, how many of these little chips can I fit onto a silicon wafer? A silicon wafer is some big circular thing, maybe the size of like a basketball or something, you know, that, that big. Uh, and if you can fit 10 chips on there and it costs you, you know, $100 to make one of those wafers, then each chip costs you 10 bucks to make. But if you can put 1,000 chips on that same wafer, suddenly the cost per chip goes way down. So shrinking things is good because your, your costs are like, it costs me a certain amount to etch a single piece of, of silicone. Uh, and that cost like is dependent on a whole bunch of other factors. But the point is, if I can jam more and more CPUs onto that piece of silicone, the cost of making it doesn't go, go you know, doesn't go up. Uh, I would love to be able to put more things on here. So the more things you can fit onto a single silicon wafer, you know, the, the better it is for you, right? The power required to run these dinky little things goes down uh, because if you can make them smaller and smaller, if you can imagine if you had to run a chip the size of a dinner plate, a single chip, it would take a lot of power to run that thing. Uh, when you make them smaller, you don't need as much power. Uh, and the speed goes up uh, for a variety of reasons, but even just like in, at the... At the very high end of the scale, look, if the thing was the size of a basketball, it takes a certain amount of time for an electrical signal to propagate from the upper left corner to the lower right corner. Whereas if the thing is the size of your thumbnail, that distance shrinks. And when you're going really, really fast, it may seem like, oh, well, don't the electrons travel close to the speed of light and doesn't make it. Well, it makes a difference when you're trying to, you know, go billions of cycles per second or whatever. Uh, however, there's one thing that uh, that is a problem when you make things smaller. When you make them really, really small, suddenly it becomes really easy for electrons that you didn't want to go somewhere to sort of just slip through. Like you make things so small that just random electrons kind of rattling around end up sort of leaking through where you didn't want them to go just because everything is so small. Like when things are big and chunky, you can put a big wall between them. No electrons can go through here. I'm totally putting down this big wall. But when things are really, really, really tiny, that wall is so skinny that occasionally maybe a couple electrons start floating through there. And that's called leakage current. Uh, And there are various techniques to try to control that. But that's when you start getting really small, like down to the size of like where you're measuring the feature sizes and, you know, how many atoms are there between this area and that area, then you have some problems. But in general, uh, doing shrinks is better. Uh, there's another article again by John Stokes, also an older article, talking about uh, understanding Moore's Law. Uh, Moore's Law is the thing we hear uh, thrown around in the world of computing uh, a lot that most lay people, I think, understand as Moore's Law means computers get faster and faster all the time, which is not what Moore's Law actually says. It's like a third level consequence of it. What Moore's Law was saying is he was just noting that in the early days of semiconductors, the number of transistors that we can shove onto a particular area keeps doubling every 12 months. Basically, he was noting that they, they keep being able to shrink their feature sizes. So before, on this one silicon wafer, we could fit 10 CPUs. Then 12 months from now, we can fit 20. And then after that, we can fit 40. And and 12 months after that, we can fit 80. And it just keeps going up and up. And he did the graph, and he's like, wow, soon we're going to be able to shove a huge amount of transistors onto, you know, right now, we can only do uh, chips with 1,000 transistors the size of your thumbnail. Soon we'll be able to do chips with, you know, 10 times that. Uh, And especially in the early days of computing, if you gave a chip designer more transistors to work with, they could make 
a more powerful CPU. It's like, oh, before I could, I can only add two numbers together at once, but now I have double the number of transistors. I can just add another adder right next to that, and they can both go at the same time, and I can add four numbers together at the same time. Isn't that great? And I can add more memory and more cache memory and all sorts of other things that, that get better with, with uh, shrinking things. So being able to have more transistors at your disposal has led to, uh, you know, for the first couple of decades of uh, CPU development, Every year, computers would get faster and faster because those guys had more CPUs that they could deal with. And, you know, they could either make your your thing, uh, your existing CPU cost half as much, or they could make a new CPU that costs the same amount that goes twice as fast. And that was a great run uh, for how long it lasted. But uh, in general, the number of transistors doesn't exactly equal speed, but in the early days, it did. Uh, now, this was during the, the, the risk versus CISC wars where like, oh, we've got this increasing number of transistors. Uh, but your instruction set is stupid and we have a better one and you've got to put all this decode hardware on there and everything. And risk was technically superior because it didn't, it, you know, they said we found a way to make, you know, you're doing a sewing machine and we've got an electric motor and we can make this go so fast. Look at this. We've got a one gigahertz alpha processor. You can't get to one gigahertz because you can't run your sewing machine that fast. And so those Intel guys had to go back to the drawing boards. How, how, how the hell can we make this thing? go faster we've got to break these things down into small pieces and then do our little internal core that runs fast and then have the external part track everything and like you know the, the risk guys were laughing at them right you know you guys suck you made a bad choice you know you were there early we come in later we have a better solution we're going to crush you the deck alpha the power pc all sorts of killer chips from these risk uh cpu vendors in like the the 90s were going to put intel out of business uh now, Intel's smart, and they did a lot of stuff with decoding their instructions and stuff like that, but the real thing that saved Intel's bacon is the aforementioned Moore's Law, that every year uh, you could fit more and more transistors onto the same size chip. Uh, and that is relevant because as the number of transistors per unit area increases, and you know, as the number of transistors available at a given cost increases, the relative percentage of the total transistor count used by all that ugly x86 decoding and tracking hardware becomes a smaller and smaller percentage of the total. All right, so you can do a complete x86 implementation in like 29,000 transistors. Like the 8086 had 29,000 transistors, right? Obviously, modern CPUs need, you know, they're doing more complicated stuff than the 8086. But it just goes to show that like how many transistors do you need to take x86 instructions crack them into micro operations track them as they go through the machinery and reassemble them in the end it's more than twenty nine thousand, uh you know and of course it's not it's not as simple as that was but ivy bridge transistors the current like ivy bridge line of cpus have 1.4 billion transistors they have billion transistors in them that's a lot right so what percentage of that 1.4 billion transistors is dedicated to dealing with x86 decode tracking and reassembly stuff the the uh, what eventually happened was yeah x86 was uglier and you know there's other market forces involved there or whatever but the the penalty for having a crappier instruction set just started to shrink and shrink and shrink because transistors were just falling out of the sky and it's like oh we got to dedicate half our chip to do dealing with x86 okay now we have to dedicate a fourth okay now we're dedicating an eighth now we're dedicating a 16th and eventually it's like it doesn't matter you know how many uh, CPUs it takes for us to deal with x86. It is an insignificant percentage of the total number of CPUs uh, of transistors in this CPU. In fact, most of the CPU, like half of it is cache at this point. You know, it's, it doesn't matter that we have an uglier instruction set uh, because of Moore's law and many other factors. 
but you know, in a large part because of Moore's law, the x86 penalty for having to do all that ugly stuff uh, went away. And the risk sys guy's theoretical cool advantage of, you know, we have a simpler instruction set, we don't have to deal with ugly decoding and coding uh, was no longer relevant. Uh, and along the way in that process, since it was so important for Intel to be able to have as many transistors as, as at its disposal as it, as it uh, wanted, and also because, you know, doing die shrinks have many other advantages, uh, Intel got really good at doing those shrinks. Like, say, so, okay, this year we're going to be at 65 nanometer, and next year we're going to be at 45, and then the year after that we're going to be at 32, and they're just like, shrink, 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 because we want more and more transistors <laughs> on our chips. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it, it gives us an advantage. We want to have as many as we want. It, it helped them out when they were trying to decrease the burden, the x86 burden, because uh, like, so what? We got to do this decode stuff, whatever. We just, we just need more CP, more transistors. Throw them on there, right? Put on, you know, uh, increase caches on their chips to make them faster, all stuff like that. Uh, yeah, so, so while the x86 burden is technically gross and upsetting to techno purists like me, uh, it, at this point, it has very little practical effect or... Rather, its practical effects are able to be managed by Intel because Intel is really smart and they have a lot of transistors. And as mentioned earlier, Intel is currently shipping 22 nanometer chips. That's their their feature size. Uh, all right. Now, Apple's A6, their cool fancy CPU that's in the iPhone 5 and the iPad 4, that is a 32 nanometer chip. Uh, and 32 is bigger than 22. And this highlights something that has been going on for many years now. For the past several years, Intel has consistently been one generation at least ahead of everybody else on feature size. So Intel's been shipping 22 nanometer chips for a long time. And Apple's A6, which just came out on the iPhone 5 fairly recently, is 32 nanometer. Uh, Intel is ahead. And, and by the way, Intel is sh- fit shipping full-fledged CPUs at 22 nanometers with 1.4 billion transistors. <laughs> it's not even close to what the A6 is, right? Most chi- most uh, chip makers, when they start off on a new process node, first they make memory because memory is very regular, very simple, not complicated at all. And they just make memory chips. And after they've sorted that out, okay, we can make 32 nanometer memory chips. Let's try making some more complicated things. And eventually they work their way up to a big complicated CPU. Intel is shipping CPUs with billions of transistors at 22 nanometers. Apple, for all its amazing power and money, is shipping 32 nanometer chips. And this is in a context where like, boy, you know, incredibly power sensitive you want it to be small you want it to use not a lot of power wouldn't it be great if apple could ship a 22 nanometer a6 why don't they because intel has been ahead of everyone else because they invest tons of money in it they have the most experience uh and it's been a pretty sustained advantage it's not like oh well one year intel is ahead then another year amd is ahead no intel has been the big dog here they are making chips a generation ahead of what everyone else has been doing in terms of feature size all of which finally brings us back to Apple switching to ARM. And this may be a good time to do the final sponsor before I, before I bring this home. Happy to oblige at squarespace.com. Everything you need to make an amazing website. We use them for a lot of the blogging stuff because that's kind of what they're known for. That's kind of how they get their start. But you can build entire websites. You can have multiple blogs on the websites. You can have galleries. They're basically a completely managed environment. Allow you to create and maintain. And maintain is the key a website, a blog portfolio. What's cool about Squarespace is you don't have to know anything. Maybe you're, maybe all you do is worry about risk and CISC processors and you don't want to understand how to build a site. You can use this drag and drop stuff. But if you are an Uber geek and you like things like writing code and HTML and controlling JavaScript and you want to control every single aspect of the site, you can do that 
with their templates, you just switch to developer mode. And you can use SFTP or you can use Git to publish your site. It's super, super cool. And you can go to developers.squarespace.com to learn more about that. All of their templates, at least until you bust them up, start as completely responsive things. They restructure automatically when you look at them on an iOS device. What this means is you're not going to have to deal with serving up a crummy mobile version of your site to someone. You you build it once and it looks good everywhere. Or just use their templates that are already built to do that. So here's the way this works. This is not free. They give you 24-7 customer support. You got to pay for that. It's not something that just happens. They don't have a staff of people there that, you know, for nothing. But it's 10 bucks a month. Actually, it's less than that if you use the coupon code, which I'll tell you about in a second. You want the uh, unlimited plan, it's 20 bucks a month. You sign up for a year, you get 20% off. You sign up for two years, you get 25% off. Some people just want to be month to month. That's fine too. You don't have to even give them a credit card to try it out. And that's what I would like for you to do. Trying it out will support the show. Go to squarespace.com slash five by five. You don't have to give them anything. You just come up with a little name for your site and get going. The code that you want to use is Dan sent me 11. By the way, a couple people were saying, oh, Dan sent me 11 code wasn't working yet. It's working now. Dan sent me 11. This is going to get you 10% off. Whether you do the month to month or the year, it's all cumulative. So go check them out. Support this show, squarespace.com slash five by five. Code is Dan sent me 11. More details in the show notes. All right. Apple switching to ARM, meaning Apple stops putting Intel CPUs in their Macs and replaces them would this be, would this with be a, ARM CPUs. Would this be a bigger move, John, than the switch to Intel uh, back in, what was it, 03, 06? Yes, it would be. I'll explain why. So what are the challenges facing Apple if they decide to do this? First thing they have to do is they have to match the performance of Intel CPUs. Maybe you don't have to exceed them, but you at least have to match it. Because if you have Intel CPUs now and you're saying, we don't want them anymore, we want ARM CPUs. Well, you don't want to make everything slower, right? And you don't have to match the current Intel CPUs. You have to match the upcoming Intel CPUs. Like, you know, you have to look at Intel's roadmap and say, well, they say in this year they're going to come out with the CPU. Can we make something that uh, has that kind of performance? Intel is really good at making CPUs, right? Uh, Apple's A6 is, uh, by all accounts, uh, very good and nicely designed and everything. But Apple didn't have to design the instruction set itself. It sort of licensed that from ARM. Uh, and the stuff that it's doing at CPU, it's a smaller CPU. It looks like it was hand laid out and stuff like that. But it is not as ambitious as the crazy stuff that Intel does routinely to make its x86 chips fast because x86 is still ugly and disgusting and they managed to make that go fast. So they've got serious skills there. Uh, look at AMD, the only other real viable competitor to Intel back in the old desktop server CPU wars, they AMD invented the x86-64 instruction set while Intel was off screwing things up with uh, Itanium. <laughs> AMD has lots of, you know, has some skill there. For a while, AMD was faster and better than Intel back when Intel was in the NetBurst Pentium 4 days where they just concentrated entirely on clock speed to the detriment of everything else. That turned out to not be a good idea. So AMD was ahead for a while. Uh, but these days, Intel has come roaring back and got their house in order, and they've just been trouncing AMD in terms of performance for many years now. Uh, and if you look at like the Geekbench scores of like you know people saying, well, what about just we'll just use the A6 in a MacBook Air? Like I'm picking Geekbench just because it's a site that I could find. You know, it's very difficult to benchmark CPUs and say what makes one faster or whatever. But no matter how bad and synthetic these benchmarks are, uh, at a certain point it makes a difference. So like 
the the uh, iPhone five from the Geekbench scores, it was like uh, sixteen hundred or something like that. I know their their scores confused me. iPad three, someone said an iPad three with an A six, but the iPad three doesn't have an A six, so that's also confusing me. But anyway, the iPad, the fastest iPad score I could find was like five thousand. Uh, the MacBook Air scores that I could find were like eight thousand, right? And then the Mac Pro scores were like thirty six thousand. So from the Mac Pro at the top at 36,000 and the iPhone 5 with an A6 at 1,000, that's like an order of magnitude difference there in range between what, what these little ARM CPUs can do. Uh, no one's saying you're going to put an A6 into a Mac, but it just goes to show that Apple has yet to build an ARM CPU that is performance competitive with this. It. So it's not like they have something ready to go, even like the A15, uh, which is, is uh, the reference design from ARM CPUs or whatever. There's a long gap between anything, any actual shipping ARM CPU and the fastest shipping Intel CPUs. Uh, so somehow Apple would be, it's their responsibility to now bridge that gap. Because again, you do not want to ship the next generation of MacBook Airs that are slower than the current generation. So you have to match them. And that's hard to do. Right? Second, and this is the real killer, you want to match their power consumption. Because the whole reason you're you know, supposedly going to ARM is like, oh, we use ARM CPUs in our phones and they sip battery and then we keep using these, these big, hot, power-hungry Intel CPUs in our, in our MacBook Airs. Uh, well, you can't just take the current crop of ARM CPUs and stick them to a Mac because they're way too slow. And if you can make them as fast, now you have to make them as fast and make them, uh, you know, and not make them consume as much power as Intel's upcoming line of stuff. Uh, and one of the biggest factors, if not the biggest factor in how much power your CPU takes is the process size. And as previously mentioned, Intel is an entire generation ahead on process. While you are making... 32 nanometer chips, Intel is shipping 22 nanometer chips, and that's a huge advantage when it comes to, to power, right? Uh, so for desktops and laptops, is it possible to match or exceed Intel's performance and its performance per watt at a bigger process node? Like, can you make can you make a CPU at 32 nanometers that has better performance and better performance per watt than Intel when they get to use 22 nanometers? Probably not. That's probably pretty much a physical impossibility, no matter how awesome you are and how incompetent Intel is. And Intel is not incompetent, <laughs> right? And and even if you could, what would your advantage be? Say, okay, I think that at 32 nanometers, I can make a chip that has better price performance than Intel, even though they get to make all their chips at 22 nanometers, right? Uh, say you could do that. Can you do it at lower cost? You know, because they can fit way more chips onto a wafer and they've been doing it for longer. And by the way, you have to find someone to manufacture this chip for you. And the articles mentions they could use a TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, like, you know, dedicated semiconductor foundry. You give them a design, they manufacture it. They're not in the process. They're not in the business of making chips. You just say, OK, you've got a design. Fab it for me. Make these chips. Again, they're, they're consistently a generation behind what Intel can produce. And Intel does not really rent out its foundries to its competitors. Oh, you, Intel's not going to say, hey, you want to make a... Chips here? Oh, we'll make your ARM chips for you at 20 nanometers. Just give us the design and we'll turn them out. No, that's not really what they're interested in for obvious reasons, right? When Apple switched from PowerPC to Intel, uh, I wrote an article about this. I linked in the show notes. In general, it was a relief because finally, Apple fans and Apple itself could stop worrying about, oh God, Intel's got some new chips coming out and they're really awesome and they're a generation ahead in process node and they're, they're really fast and we need PowerPC chips that can compete with those. And we have to go beg IBM to make them for us or beg Motorola to do something. That's just 
finally it was a relief. Like, all right, we're off that bandwagon. Whatever Intel comes out with, we get to reap those benefits. Now, suddenly Apple users for the past, I don't know how many years it's been, for a long time now, we've not had to worry about CPUs. We've not had to worry about Macs are slow because they use crappy CPUs. They use the same ones that everyone else, which also happen to be the best ones in terms of price and performance, which are from Intel. Going back to ARM would mean that you are back on the, the hook of like, oh God, oh God, Intel's coming out with new chips. We need to, uh, <laughs> we need to make something that's as good as these new Intel chips. And Apple, hurry up and design that ARM chip that's going to, you know, compete with Intel chips. And that, that horse race will be back, which would be exciting, but also depressing if Intel starts kicking our butts. Uh, one obvious question here is like, okay, so if Intel's always ahead in process node and they're making 22 nanometer chips, why don't all the iPhones and iPads use Intel chips? Uh, that's a good question for the senior leadership at Intel, because part of the problem has been that uh, thus far Intel has not. Well, first of all, when you get down to small sizes, suddenly that x86 burden becomes more relevant again. Because when you're making a 1.4 billion transistor chip, yeah, the, the number of transistors you need to deal with x86 crap uh, is a small percentage. But if you make a much, 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 much smaller chip with far fewer transistors, like the A6, suddenly that x86 stuff there starts to count. And you're like, oh, geez, I would really like it if I didn't have to deal with the x86 stuff. And the ARM chips don't have to deal with it. They're very simple, very straightforward risk machines. Uh, that's why a 32 nanometer A6 chip can even compete in the mobile space, because the x86 burden... Uh, is relevant there. Like the best of both worlds would be take Apple's A6 design and have Intel fab it at 22 nanometers. But that doesn't exist <laughs> because Intel's not going to do that for you. And Intel is trying to make wimpier and wimpier CPUs. It's got its atom line of processors and they just keep going. You know, Intel is going down, down, down scale. And as it goes down scale, smaller chips, fewer transistors, the x86 stuff starts to become relevant again, which must stick in Intel's craw. But what else can you do? Because that's what they've got. Intel used to have uh, holdings in ARM and that divested itself from ARM and dedicated itself to x86 and there's you know that's all other show too about whether they're doing the right move there but the bottom line is that you've got arm way down at the low end with a very simple low power chip design but a generation behind in manufacturing not that arm manufacture stuff but like whoever they're fabbing them it's not intel and then you had intel trying to bring its its incredibly successful desktop products down market and mostly failing to do so and that's that's the tension and that's the gap we have right now uh so the obvious explanation that i see for this floated rumor about Apple going to Intel, and this is, you know, what everyone thinks as soon as they see it, it's like, Apple's not ditching Intel. There's nothing viable that they can move to. This is just a negotiating ploy so that Apple can get good prices out of Intel for its next generation of chips or so that Apple can influence Intel and say, Intel, we really want you to do X, Y, and Z and make Intel listen to them because, you know, they'll say, oh, all right, we heard you might go to ARM. Don't do that. Let's kiss and make up, right? Uh that's kind of like when Apple was talking to Intel for years and years when it was shipping PowerPC Macs. Part of it was like, oh, they're just talking to Intel because they're trying to force IBM or Motorola or whoever it was at that time to make them the chip that they wanted. They're not actually going to go to Intel, but they have to keep talking with Intel because otherwise, uh, you know, IBM won't make the G5 for Apple, right? It's all a negotiating ploy. But the thing is, eventually, that negotiating ploy apparently stopped working uh, and Apple actually did go to Intel. And so... That that type of phenomenon over the course of many, many years could happen here where these arm, you know, bringing the max to arm rumor keeps getting floated and floated and they keep using it as negotiating leverage at a certain point Intel calls their bluff and says, you know what, we've got to take care of our own business. Oh, you know, we've got to do something. And yeah, the chips we're going to make aren't perfectly suited to you, but you're just going to have to deal with it. Maybe Intel does leave them and go to arm and starts up that race again. Uh, I don't know. Uh, final couple of closing thoughts here. Yes. Intel's market cap is uh, 
as of the time I made these show notes, 1.4 billion. Apple has more cash than that, like in its bank account. And some of it's long term, you know, not not immediately liquid or whatever. But could Apple buy Intel? Probably, if it, if it really wanted to. If it wanted to spend all, it's like spending. You know, you get you you save money for years and years and years, and you spend it all in one spot. Yeah, Apple could probably try to buy Intel. Uh, antitrust would be a problem there or whatever. But I don't know if Apple really wants to be in that business. Apple doesn't buy like the people who make its products. It, you know, contracts it out and maybe it buys hardware for them and funds the development of their thing. But they don't want to be in the business. They want someone else to deal with the, the ugly low margin part of the business. And they just want the high margin. So I don't think Apple's going to buy Intel. Uh, Apple's market cap is currently $500 billion and rapidly dropping uh, because of their stock being slammed recently. But is this? You know, a, I'm not, I'm, yeah, I know you're not a stock analysis uh, analyst, and you won't do an analysis on the show. But uh, is this a good time to buy Apple stock? Uh, I don't know. I'm not going to give. You won't even go into it. it. You won't do it. I, n- I don't know if it's a good time. The stock market. I don't understand. No one understands the stock market. I don't know. Cer- certainly, it's better to buy now than it was to buy when it was seven hundred dollars. But ugh, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I can. I. I don't know why the stock is going down. I don't know why it keeps going down. So if you don't know. Uh, that's probably a bad time to buy anything if you don't understand what's happening. And I don't understand what's happening. So I give you no advice about whether you should buy it or not. Okay, but, so I'll take that as a strong uh, recommendation to buy. Yeah. But, but anyway, so he, that's the situation Apple is in. Uh, I don't think it can feasibly go to ARM CPUs in its Macs unless it dedicates a huge amount of money and time over the course of the next several years to coming up with something that can compete with Intel. Intel has its own problems because many, many more mobile CPUs are being bought than desktop CPUs, and that ratio keeps getting worse and worse for them. So Intel has to get into the mobile space somehow. It seems to me, though, that these two forces should lead to an arrangement whereby Apple and Intel's interests become aligned at some point. Intel wants in on the mobile space. Apple wants processors a certain way. Apple talks to Intel. Eventually, they come to some sort of agreement, and this ARM stuff is just noise, right? But on the other hand, like, you know, Bob Mansfield coming back and have big plans for the semiconductor division or whatever. uh, It could just be good business, just like it was good business to constantly be talking with Intel and constantly be having that version of, you know, Mac OS X for Intel in the labs or whatever. It's probably good business for Apple to at least investigate what would it take to get an ARM CPU design that would be competitive with Intel and how many years would it take? How much money would it take? And let's Let's have that project and let's also consider how much would it take if we just paid Intel to make our chips for us and can we convince Intel to fab our stuff at 22 nanometers? Can Apple itself invest enough money to suddenly match Intel's ability to fab chips, you know, and their expertise? Probably not. Like many options are on the table, but I think this this entire story at this point is like this is something to watch in the same way that you should have been watching those silly rumors about Apple talking to Intel or talking to AMD for years and years and years before they actually did the switch. It's like, it's easy to dismiss that stuff, but I think it's, it's a good idea to just keep an eye on that because Apple has many options here and none of them are really that good. And same with Intel, they have many options and none of them are really that good either. But I think what I think is that eventually if Apple and Intel keep going along the current path, their interests will be sufficiently aligned such that they will be able to come to some mutually beneficial agreement that will not involve Apple 100% jilting them and making its own ARM processors. Uh, because I think that is a really, really tall order. And, and, and the biggest thing against it is because Intel is still ahead of everyone by a generation in, in process node. If that changes, if suddenly everyone else catches up to Intel and Apple can get its chips fabbed at the same size as Intel can, then that's a whole new ball game. But 
like I said, for years and years, Intel has been ahead, and it seems to be a sustainable advantage on their on their part. And they invest tremendous amount of money, billions and billions of dollars, into maintaining that advantage. Uh, very few other companies have the kind of money to invest in that, or the expertise, or the people. Apple probably has the money, but probably doesn't have the expertise, and I don't think they can hire away all of Intel's people. So, uh, all that is to say, keep watching this space. But for now, don't worry. Next year's crop of Macs will not have ARM processors in them. Or at least all of them won't anyway. <laughs> Maybe one of them will. Who knows? Uh, but yeah, don't hold your breath. All right. If you, if you say so. I say so. Pretty good argument. It's not much of an argument there. A little background and then an area to watch. Do you expect an ARM Max next year? Not next year. Any ARM Max? A single pilot <laughs> program ARM Mac? An experimental one? Just one? Nothing? Behind the scenes, behind closed doors, I'm sure. But, you know, here, if, if you think about everything that Apple has done, as far as wanting to control their own destiny, the move to Intel was in large part so that they could have more control that was the whole issue that they had with power PC chips is they, they could never get anything fast. They switched Intel. They get the, they get the fast stuff. Right. And not so much because they controlled Intel, but just because Intel's interest was to make the best chip, the fast like, stuff. Yeah. Right. And so now they were never second class. You don't have to go beg Intel. Intel, will you please make us good desktop? <laughs> Intel's making good desktop processes. Right. Anyway. You and, don't have to beg them. Right. But now it's getting to the point where Apple's like Intel, please. Like, I know you want to make these processors, but we need very, very specific things. We want a retina display. Can you build in a GPU that can drive a retina display? Oh, this scenario. So on the Intel HD graphics 3000, just barely or 4000 or whatever, just barely can drive a retina display, but we totally want to do retina everywhere. Can you please make your in-chip GPU better? And Intel's like, oh, that's not really on the It's not a priority for us, us right but, now. Yeah. So suddenly Apple's having to beg Intel a little bit. But yeah, going away from PowerPC is like, finally, we don't have to beg anyone for our CPU. They, they still, by the way, Apple used the opportunity to get as much leverage as they possibly could on Intel of like, you know. Intel's going to make chips just for us, and we have a say. Remember they made that crazy uh, shrink version for the original MacBook Air? Like, they got Intel to make, like, a custom chip just for them so they could jam a CPU. I think it was the original MacBook Air. Like, Apple has been using its leverage, like, you know, at first it was like, don't you want us for, like, a trophy brand? You can say your stuff is in an Apple CPUs, and then it was like, oh, we sell a lot of Intel CPUs and your other, you know, and now it's like, Apple's like, oh, you know, how you have any idea how many mobile CPUs we sell? If you want any part of that business ever, you better listen to us. I know you're not getting any of it now, but someday, you know, talk to us. Maybe you can convince us to change all of our iPhones and iPads and iOS devices to x86. If you ever make a decent x86 chip, you know, like the negotiations are getting more strained between those two companies. But uh, I have to think that eventually they will, their heads will come together and we'll get something good out of this. Well, let's, you know what, I mean, I think Apple, like you said, Apple would be thrilled if Intel would just do that kind of thing. But then each, if you think about it, each of the things that Apple relies on for, from other vendors that it doesn't control, that it feels that it, it it's like, there's this rumor that just came out that the new iMacs are going to be delayed because of a welding issue. This is something that Apple pretty much can, can control. So that's their fault. But if they can't get enough screens... You know, that, that, that's got to bug them. We can't get enough screens. If they can't get a CPU that's going to do what they want, if they can't offload graphics to the CPU the way that they want, these are things that you would think Apple's going to say, well, we've got some money. Let's, let's just do this ourselves. 
Apple, yeah, I mean, like they, they want to. I mean, Samsung, as we haven't even mentioned, like they don't want to pay Samsung no. to make all the ASIC CPUs, and they're like, that's why they've been pulling this stuff in house. Like we don't want exactly. to just make the A5, but we want to make a custom design chip, and we want to be able to pay anyone to fab. And I think the A6 is not just being fabbed by Samsung. I may be wrong about this, but yeah, but paying Samsung to make your CPUs. That's bad. Samsung is the only other person making money in the in the smartphone market. You don't want to be paying them any money. So yeah, I can imagine Apple wanting to go elsewhere for that expertise, but like they can't just they can't just leave Samsung immediately. There's a certain, you know, can you get what Samsung gives you from someone else at the same price? And if the answer is no, you're like, you got to grit your teeth and keep going to Samsung all the while saying we got to have a plan to get away from Samsung. Like wouldn't Apple love to say please like if Apple could get Intel to fab the A7 in its best process note at that time? That would be a humongous victory, but it is not an Intel strategic interest to become like a fab for other people's ship designs, right? So, the you know, those two need to come together on something. We want we want your technology. We don't want your chips. Intel's like we want to sell our chips because becoming a fab is a low margin business, and we get much better margins by making our own. You know, so I don't know. This I would love to be to see these negotiations because they're happening now. Like, what is the A7 going to be? Who's going to make it? Uh, and where is it going to be shipped? Like, maybe that maybe it's too late for those, and those discussions have already taken place, right? But for the one after that, for the A8, and for any possible like ARM and in Intel uh, ARM in uh, Max type negotiations, those have to be happening now. Like, we we need a plan. We need to talk to people. We know what we don't want to do. We don't want to give Samsung any more money, uh, and we also don't want to use any of the the chips that Intel is currently offering us because they're way too power hungry. We want our A8 design manufactured in the best manufacturing process in the entire world uh, at a really cheap price. And Intel doesn't want that. They want something different. So yeah, those, they need to come together on something, but I, you know, the only, the only way I can imagine Apple going full split off is if they have like a concrete plan where they really believe that they can make a line of Macs that is not embarrassingly slower or crappier than what they would have been if they had Intel CPUs. And Intel is going to use, do everything in its power to make sure that Apple doesn't never even thinks that's possible. Like they just need to make Apple like so despair for their ability to match Intel CPUs that they won't even attempt it because Intel will show them their roadmap and say, you're never going to have anything that's going to compete with this. Look at this. Do you, this is our this is our roadmap. That's what they did to get Apple's business. They said, yeah, current line of CPUs suck, but look at this upcoming line of core processors. They are awesome. They are really fast. They are low power. And that was all true. And Intel delivered on that commitment like they you know back then was like why doesn't apple go with amd don't they make better cpus and stuff but intel shows in their roadmap apple said fine you're going to make that then go make that and intel did go make that and intel makes amazing cpus that powered you know you know decades worth of great intel max or however many years it's been but now we're coming to that point again and so intel does have credibility here if they come to apple and say look yeah don't even think about trying to make your arm cpus can you compete with this you can't match us just you know we need to come to an agreement here don't even try you're going you're gonna to spend billions and billions of dollars and it's not going to work out for you. Just look at ha- what happened to AMD. We crushed them. Don't even attempt it. But we're friends. Let's be friends. Business. It's like war. But with money. Keep your friends close. Your enemies closer. Yes. And your frenemies, I don't know where you keep them, but like I guess somewhere in the middle. All right. You want to wrap this up? I think we're done. All right, so you can go to 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash 94, and you will get uh, you will get all of the notes and links that John has put there. You can learn about CISC and RISC, among other things. You can uh, follow John on Twitter. He is Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A. 
USA. And uh, I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. He is also on alpha.app.net at Syracuse. I'm Dan over there. And uh, I guess that's it. You don't want me to talk about the other one because you're not using it. I use tent.is, tent.io, whatever. I do. All right. So he's Syracuse over there too. We appreciate you listening. If you would like, you can rate the show on iTunes. You can uh, visit the sponsors. It's a wonderful way to help support the show and the whole network. We thank you very much for listening. And uh, John, I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.